0: yeah Yeah. 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 welcome to the into the wilderness podcast we've now returned from the northern shooting show and currently, as this goes out,
1: we are in Finland, so a little yeah. bit a little bit far further away from home. The northern shooting show was simply awesome uh we I don't know where the two days went. Because they went through, they went past like lightning. It
0: was, but it wasn't like when we go to shows. Sometimes it's not stressful, but it's like your mind is just dead by the end of the day because often we have so many meetings and that. But the Northern Shooting Show wasn't like that. It was before. a little bit more relaxed, way more relaxed than we. And we we got to we were, meet a lot of you yeah. guys, so thank you to. Loads of you that came up and said you loved watching either the series or listened to the podcast, and hello to any of the people that we signed up at the show to listen to the show.
1: Welcome, this is your first first new show potentially potentially a new show. We had the the premiere of our the, the next film that you're going to see out from us, which is In Search of Reverence, and it, it premiered on the big screen in the main hall of the Northern Shooting Show this weekend. And on the first day, on the Saturday, it was it was pretty cool because it came up. And then the sort of main entrance around the main door just kind of ground to a halt. Yeah. And there was all these people standing around looking up at the main screen yeah, to watch the film. Cool. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to bring that to everybody soon, just as soon as it's finished in the film festivals.
0: But yeah, no, awesome. Uh, big thanks to Richard and Paul for uh, helping us out, helping us out, and putting on an awesome show.
1: And it's going to be great again next year. was
0: it, it was very busy this year.
1: Yeah, it was very busy. We were, we had, um, we were on. As the Scottish Association for Country Sports, the well, the sponsor of this podcast, we were on like the second part of their stand. They had a main stand right opposite uh, Blazer in the middle. And then we were on a, on a, on a separate bit that just had sort of our, our podcast With our, stuff. our friends from the Stalker's Dream. Yes, so. we had friends from the Stalker's Dream were right, right next door to us. And opposite us was the a stage, a live debate stage, which is what in fact what you're going to be hearing today. Yes. So...
0: You will be hearing. Uh, you'll have to. We'll have to say the guests because they. We actually didn't catch the very first bit where they introduced themselves. But luckily, when Barn uh, is going through the the people, he na- references their first name. So we'll go through their names before we th- start the show, and then everybody knows who they are and what they're involved in. Mm-hmm. And then when Barn introduces their first name, you'll know what voice you're listening out for. Apologies for the the audio for this podcast i wouldn't say it's the worst we've had but it's very difficult we were struggling a bit with the 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 trade off between being loud so the audience could hear and interference so you, if you can hear a bit of a high pitched noise now and then that's interference if it sounds a little bit hollow that's because we were outside
1: it's mm-hmm. almost it is live it, it is live it's almost completely unavoidable so but we, you can hear everybody and can, there's some really great debate Uh, across a whole variety of topics, i'm not even gonna gonna list them off because we we covered so much um and it'll be in the title of the show it will (laughs) will indeed be in the title Uh, we did it over both days so this is the the first First day day on saturday Uh, we did it again on sunday so in two weeks time you're not going to hear that you're going to hear a different podcast that we recorded last week with louise gray who is the author of the ethical carnivore So maybe go and pick that up and have a read before you get to the podcast. Probably a good idea. And then two weeks after that, you're going to hear part two, which is, uh, well, I say it's part two. It's a a completely different panel. Don't don't skip over
0: it just because it's the Northern Cheating Show and you think, oh, it might be similar to the one I've just listened. It's completely different because it's different guests, different day, different different audience, different
1: topics. Yeah. So it's uh, like starting fresh. Yeah. We have a winner from the competition which we ran two weeks ago, which was to win a reloading manual from Hornady. Hornady Reloading Manual. Everybody should have one if you are a reloader. And we had a ton of entries because you guys like to enter picture competitions. Yeah.
0: Uh, not only on Facebook but also on Instagram. So thank you. I saved them all on Instagram. I was getting tagged left, right, and centre. It was pretty crazy. Um, and on Facebook was the same. There was some fantastic entries. Is it was that, hard. We've it's,
1: just spent ages looking through them all to try and decide. Th- this is
0: probably the highest caliber of pictures we've had. Like lots of really good pictures we've had for any competition we've done. So it's made it very, very difficult. That's why the next competition we're going to talk about in a minute is also going to be a picture competition because uh, we want people to re-enter some of the pictures to, to win. So we'll start off with the winner. And where was it? I need to find it now. I completely lost it. Was it was in the Welsh Hills. It was in the Welsh Hills. Uh, I will find it in a second. No, I was cannot find hill. it. Was it? I will find this while Byron... Uh, oh, I found it now. Okay, Kane Pickering. And out with uh, his brother in the Welsh Hills. Congratulations, you've won the Hornady Reloading Manual.
1: It is. It was a, a very cool picture, but also the level of photography of the picture was also very high, yeah. as well as being in an awesome place, so well done.
0: Yeah, so there's uh, a few other mentions that we would... We'll, we'll mention a, f- a few of you guys, because the pictures have been absolutely brilliant um is it aaron uh rain rainy aaron rainy defender uh, well done defender. soft spot <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh luke dale also a really cool picture of your your camp uh well doug smith uh you uh you try to sway us there with a picture of our our home home turf of uh Lee. uh who else have we got that's uh exceptional dave brooks awesome picture of i think it was bow hunting a carp in the usa mm. uh that was also up there with like potential winner uh james adamson you were also up there with uh, potential winner
1: with a picture of uh, a killer whale which is pretty epic you hadn't no, just for the people listening it, it wasn't a hunted killer whale no, it no, was no. a picture of him standing, standing with a killer yesterday. whale breaking the <laughs> breaking the water
0: yep. uh bow hunter um I'm not sure if that's actually your real name or you've just named yourself on Facebook Bo Hunter, which is quite <laughs> cool in a way. But anyway, uh, you as well have been an uh, exceptional picture um, and uh ruined bester. I, I, the list can kind of go on the sort of saying the caliber is <laughs> yeah, It's so almost high. like every
1: second one we're yeah. going to have to shout out. So yeah, you all did an awesome job. There's going to be another competition uh, running for this show. Um it is t- to win a set of smith optics shooting glasses but these ones are actually a little bit different to the ones that we've been giving away in previous shows uh, these are well the most expensive ones that we've been giving away because they have uh, interchangeable lenses mm-hmm. all the other previous features uh, the ballistic protection and tinting and lifetime warranty and all that good stuff uh, except you can also change the lenses yep. for this one so Worthy, worthy product. It's going to be another picture
0: competition on Facebook and Instagram. Same rules as last time. And we just want an outdoors outdoors picture. That's all we ask for. Um, and by the variation of pictures we got before, you guys all, all nailed it. And me and Byron have said that because the caliber was so high that we will allow, if you didn't win last, uh, last show, you can re-enter the pictures that you, you, can. you put in before. It's going to be tough. We might actually have to bring in an external judge, I think.
1: Maybe. Uh,
0: because it's it's getting
1: too tough for the two of us. Uh, a big shout out, although we did it two weeks ago, just to everybody who contributed to um, our chimpanzee funding cause, which was to raise £660 to house and feed a chimpanzee for a year, which was a cause brought forward by Ivan Carter in his podcast from a good few weeks back now. If you are one of the many listeners who hasn't listened to that yet, then go and do it. I think it was during a period of time when a lot of people were on holiday and you've uh, probably got a little bit of catching up to do it. Yep. Uh, but it's a great podcast. And that's where that cause came from. It came from, from that interview with them. And we reached our total. So thank you so much. I think much. we've actually gone beyond we've it. We've gone just beyond it. And yeah. we had a last last few donations in the last couple of days. Everybody that was handing
0: us cash at the Northern Shooting Show, it was greatly appreciated. And yeah, we we got pushed over the target uh, by Toby. It's Toby Angel, I think.
1: So thank you very yeah. much, Toby. Well, to everybody, yeah. but Toby was the, the last donation which pushed us over the yeah. edge now. So we've got the money. I, I want, We actually wanted to send it this week, but we are just about to jump on a plane to Finland. So when we get back in a week's time, we will uh, just collate the, the amount, yeah. get, let everybody see it, and then we will send it over to Ivan Kostkos, to so the Loiru sanctuary.
0: We'll keep the, um, the chimpanzee donation on our website until we send the money, and then we're going to be taking it off the website. And you then from then on, you can donate directly to, to Ivan, uh, Carter. Or Ra- a yeah. Ivan Carter. Raindrop Initiative. Google Ivan Carter. You'll
1: find a way. Yeah. And I think that's about it. Yeah, I don't... It's, know. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting show. And for a change, you've got a lot of people to listen to. Not just us and one guest. <sighs>
0: yeah. Oh, but we were having massive compliments from the last show. Yes, we were.
1: Yeah, uh, which was really great because it was slightly off-topic from the kind of thing we normally dis- uh, discuss, but We've been amazed how many people have listened to it and amazed how many, as Daryl said, the amount of comments that we've had off the back of it, which is brilliant.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm very pleased. And I've just shared it in a few farming places. So
1: maybe they'll learn a few things or two. Yeah. We might have to do some more, slightly more agricultural based. Uh, yeah, no, it's, you, you know, what's really nice is
0: that uh, this is probably the most heavy agricultural show that we did last, uh, the last show I'm talking about. And the response we had has been absolutely phenomenal. Everybody learning something. Even our cousin in New Zealand messaged us literally within a few hours of it going up because of the time difference. He obviously listened to it during the night or something, or during our day, our our night, his day, and uh, he messaged us saying that he found it absolutely fascinating about the, the, the hefting she- of the, the hefting sheep. hefting of the sheep.
1: Yeah. So there you go. If you don't know what we're talking about, that means you haven't <laughs> listened to the, the show two weeks ago. So
0: go check it out. Yeah uh So we're going to leave you for now, and if you are commuting, which we found out that a massive amount of you are listening to this on the commute,
1: drive safely. Yeah, definitely. This show is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. You will be hearing um, Alex Stoddart, the director of SACS, in this podcast. He is one of the panelists, so you you'll be able to find out a little you bit more about just all the people on the show. I just remembered. I'm going to introduce all of them now. Okay. The guests for our panel, in no particular order, are Dom Holtham, the editor of Rifle Shooter magazine, Patrick Gilbraith, editor of the Shooting Times, Sarah Reed, events and uh, she looks after events and training for the National G- Gamekeepers Organisation, Alex Stoddart, who is the director of SACS, and Rachel Carey, who's a shooter and has a, a strong presence in the UK shooting community. recorded for our podcast, which is Into the Wilderness, which you can find on any podcast app. Um, so if you need to walk away and go see the rest of the show, you'll at least be able to listen to the discussion uh, at a later date. Uh, so yes, welcome to our panel, to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. think the only person who's been on before is Alex. So the rest of you are all new, so fantastic. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. We've got a whole array of topics that we're going to kind of mull over, muse over, and debate, talk about ramble and Dom's words. Uh, I don't think we'll get them all covered today, but as a starting point, um, I wanted to talk about the reintroduction of non-native species. So up in Scotland, uh, there is discussion right now, and not just Scotland, over the border into England, the reintroduction of lynx, we've had uh, beaver studies on the west coast and the illegal uh, reintroduction of beavers uh, actually very close to where, where we live. So just get your thoughts about reintroduction of these species and sort of encapsulated by rewilding, which we hear a lot about in our media and press. So Patrick, maybe I could just just start with you and just see what, what your opinion is on the reintroduction of, of these species, which are, are no longer there. I mean, where do you draw the line? Do
2: we draw the line at wolves? I think um, it's very important. If you read the national press, you see a huge amount about it in uh, in, in papers. You know, people like George Monbiot and papers like The Guardian. And it's a hugely romantic notion. I was having a conversation with Patrick Laurie, who some of you might know from his black grouse reintroduction program uh, in Dumfrieshire. And he said to me that he himself gets a little carried away with romantic notions of reintroduction, but then sort of actually takes a seat back and talks to people about it who work uh, uh, on the land and aren't perhaps reading these papers and are actually there and then thinks uh, that it's not as good an idea as it might seem. Uh, I think there's that, that constant thing between practicality and romanticism and it's a very fine line and one that we have to get right. Sarah, yourself?
3: Yeah, well, I personally have a view of it that um, there's an awful lot of species in this country that are already struggling as it is. And to introduce an extra apex predator like the lynx, I, I personally don't think it's the right way to go forward. Um, we, we've met with the lynx trust a couple of times now, which has been really interesting to understand how it is supposed to work, because obviously gamekeepers working on the, on the ground want to know a bit more if it is to go forward. Um, And things like um, lynx are obviously their top prey item is the deer and that's what they're thinking it's to help to control deer populations and in my mind I just can't see it working with the farming that we've got in this country, very small country compared to the vast areas in Germany and places like that where obviously it's worked. I can't see it working in this country, in England. So they've got a few sites. They've looked at Norfolk and Kielder and places like that. But personally for me, and the keepers, certainly doesn't seem to be going down very well at the moment. So
1: Yeah, we, we've actually, for those people who want to know a little bit more about Lynx, we did a very long podcast with the Lynx Trust. It's about two hours long, actually, uh, with Dr. Paul Donoghue, which you can listen to, and you'll hear exactly from the man himself about what their plans are. But it's, yeah, it's something which, uh, it, it doesn't feel like they've necessarily consulted very well with the people who it's really going to affect which I think is what you're, you're oh, saying oh yeah the
3: farmers certainly mm. I mean they're talking about a compensation pot that will be for farmers available for farmers if they lose stock if that's what they're talking about already then they sh- they must foresee a few issues there mm. and, and we have to look at the end, end of the if, if there's a way to control if there's links problems with links yeah. are there ways to control it in the future Yeah, which and is that, key yeah,
4: control yeah. Uh, Dom, I was gonna say you, you said about Germany and the, the reintroduction of predators there. Um, a colleague of mine who works for one of the hunting magazines in Germany, um, wrote a, an article for us and said actually, in a lot of places, it hasn't worked, especially with the wolf populations, because as you said the impact on farming you know, they, they cannot keep them out of farming stock and they will access the easiest prey and a uh a farm environment is a much easier prey species than wild deer in, in open country. Um, and there's a big difference I think between introducing a, kind of a species further down the food chain and a major apex predator. So perhaps we should have a, a bit of a closer look at some of the data, disastrous impact on stuff like mouflon in Germany, um, and, and maybe think twice before we do it because you can't put the genie back in the bottle very easily.
1: No, no, that's very true and what you say about mouflon is absolutely correct. I think I was having a discussion with the same person, Nina, who writes for your magazine, and of base which is a sheep, uh, has basically disappeared in some of the forests there, where they've reintroduced links, but that's not a story that gets told here. And from my point of view, the key is tell the truth about what you're doing. <laughs> Don't hide
5: anything, and then at least we can make informed decisions. Um, Alex? Well, I think many of you know, know my views on rewilding, but uh, it's but it's important that we have a debate that's based on evidence and transparency, and so far we haven't had that there's been a lot of emotive uh, positioning from organisations who may be more interested in fundraising than, um, and the self-preservation that comes from that, rather than the actual outcome itself. So, rather than focusing on individual species to start with, my mind would be far more interested in dealing with a landscape-scale development plan that may or may not include certain species to be introduced in the future, reintroduced in the future. Um, without that um, strategic view, I don't think we should be touching with a barge pole, because we're introducing uh, another variable into our already very complicated environment that we really can't handle.
1: Um, just before I get to, to Rachel, can everybody hear okay outside? You're able to hear what everyone's saying. Great. Uh, Rachel, I'll just sort of leave the, the last word with, with you on uh, what sort of your personal view is on, on reintroduction of species like that
6: so first of all going back to um, what the guys started with it's a really romantic quite exciting idea you know links used to be in this country it's quite an exciting thing to think oh yeah you know bring them back but when you start scratching the surface and actually looking and, and i've looked to try and find data where they've reintroduced links like in germany and the one line that kind of kept cropping up was um yeah it's worked but farmers have been compensated, which tells me that, yeah, it may have worked, but it's also caused a lot of problems. Um, might excite me, but it's not going to excite the farmers, is it, who are actually living and working the land and making their money you know, from the land, um, who it's going to affect the most. So, and there's not really very much data, um, as in numbers of fallen livestock and problems that links have actually caused out there. So until I would see some solid data, Um, from those countries, I'd have to say, you know, they really need to sit down um, and and look, you know, and look at the livelihoods it's going to affect first.
1: Yeah, I think we've got a lot of species in in this country which probably need attention first before we look at reintroducing other species, would be my opinion. Can I...
6: I I think also, just to to finish what I'm going to say, um, I think also you've got to look at how how long that lynx haven't been in this country and of course the landscape, the environment's changed Mm. and, and reacted you know to to not having those predators here and and it's you know exactly and we've got this you know we've got the largest population of deer in the country at this time um but i'm friends with quite a lot of um you know professional deer stalkers we're responding to that and we're getting a great you know source of that we've got venison coming from that if we reintroduce links you know we lose a lot of that that?
2: (laughs) alex do you know um what the population would have been in scotland when the last wolf was killed, which would have been, what, late 18s? As in
5: the human population. As in
2: the human population. It would be
5: a guess, but I can tell you this, it's a lot lower than it is now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I wonder if people appreciate the extent to which you're saying populations have changed and population density have changed. You know, bringing an animal back to a country it once lived in, but it's no longer that country in any kind of recognisable form. And uh, And that's sort of madness. And also you need to think
5: about the changes in the way that we conduct ourselves, not just in terms of the modern era and industry itself, and travel, transport, the A9 and all these things. The farming itself was, in many ways, nomadic. So low-intensity yeah. farming, where you're actively managing your flocks, you're sleeping with your sheep almost, in, in, in the pens to protect them from predators. And so that we're a long way f- away from that mindset. So yeah, yeah. For, for a development that is that it should be sustainable, and also sustainable development should be sustainable, I can't see how this can work. And it's not just links. We're looking at other things now, Beaver, et cetera, and all the other things. So it is time for a, a debate that's based on facts and evidence so we're all better informed, and we can also, as a community make a decision on this together.
1: Are uh, were you, were you done there, Patrick?
2: Yeah. I'm done, okay. yeah, yeah. Is
1: there, is there anybody standing in the audience who would like to ask a question to the panel or maybe add something? You can come forward. I can't bring the mic too far out. But anyone got any comments on that? All too shy, all too shy so far. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, well the
0: so, I there was one. Oh, yeah. was
1: there one? Did I, sorry, did I speak too soon?
3: Oh, do you have any
1: questions for the panel on the reintroduction of non native species? Lynx. Well, any species, but I mean, yeah, lynx <laughs> is what we've been talking about. So please come forward so I can.
5: Why, why would you want to reintroduce something that was got rid of for a very good
1: reason? Hmm. So uh, just to repeat for the people who we are don't the recording, why would you want to reintroduce, want to reintroduce something
2: that. Uh, hasn't been there for a very long time. There's
4: a reason why it's not there. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah
6: absolutely.
2: I yeah. think that's a good point. And talking yeah. about the wolf, I mean, the wolf was got rid of because the population was clashing with the wolf. It was an animal that no longer worked you know, for a growing population. Absolutely. And the population since has obviously grown exponentially. So to reintroduce that animal 300 years on would just be absurd. Yeah. Do yeah. you
5: understand if it was a... The the way it's a predator impacts on the human yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: And just to, just to wrap up on this uh, which I think is what you were, you were saying Patrick about deer populations as well is that I I know that uh of the the roe deer that are recorded and there are obviously more shot that which are not not recorded in Scotland. Um speak of Scotland, I can't remember what year it in it was in but it was about 30,000. Now, if you do the numbers based on uh the statistics that are given by the Lynx Trust, it's basically around 30,000. So obviously that would be split between roe deer and red deer but it's going to be primarily roe deer because that's more the, the size spectrum that they like to take so what does that mean for us as humans which who also need to live in the landscape who also need to uh, make a living a lot of that is from professional stalking services so yeah, yeah. Yeah. okay we will leave that behind and we will move on to something a little bit um, a little bit different which is the use of technology now technology has been moving very very fast in all manner of industries but particularly in the shooting industry and I'm thinking here particularly of things like night vision and thermal and my question to the panel is should we as recreational well you can maybe split it if you want recreational and professional how should we be using night vision and thermal and is it necessarily ethical to use it in all circumstances and uh, maybe I'll just start with you, Sarah. You look, you look like that, you're poised.
3: Is this just on DA you're talking about? Yeah, well, so we well I it. mean, you can touch on foxes. No, I mean a- anything, yeah, just
1: uh, just across the board. I
3: think it's been a welcome addition. The um, the technology that we've got today, I think it's very much needed, um, especially for the professionals who, you know, it's imperative to keep on top of obviously a few of the predators, foxes, and things like that. Um, so, to me, the um, introduction of the the um, technology has been Absolutely brilliant. I don't know,
2: do you? I think we have to ask the question of where sort of mechanized killing ends and sport sort of starts. You know, so for example, you've got the new Swarovski's the DS, isn't it? The new yeah. DS scope, and this scope in theory will move onto the killing point, and you can then crawl forwards 20 yards in the heather. And depending on what the wind's doing, it will then move back onto the killing point. So I said to the guy at Swarovski when we were over in Germany, I said, isn't this just mechanised killing? And he said to me, which was a good point, wouldn't they have said the same thing when they moved from iron sights to scopes? But I still think we need to answer that question ourselves. So I think in terms of pest control, if you're a keeper, these things make sense. So uh, thermal uh, as opposed to lamping. But if you're just out stalking, uh, I think you want as good a day's sport as you can get. And part of that is not making it too... Easy. Yeah,
6: it's very objective isn't it and 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 like you say it's between recreational stalkers. i wouldn't want to kind of start using things like that because it would take away kind of a good 90 of of the reasons that i stalk the field craft you know the enjoyment the kind of pitting yourself against something giving something a chance um so for me personally but then on the flip side for the gamekeepers you know and people who who it's a profession as sarah said it's a really you know it's an important tool because it Probably frees up time for them to spend on the estate, perhaps on conservation projects and other things. So, mm. it's probably to people who are wanting to, you know, really get on top of predators. Welcome technology, but where where does it stop? Do they do we then start messing around? You know, like the Americans have brought all the long range rifle shooting in, and where does it kind I of mean, where does, where does itself, yeah. it stop? Yeah, long range, yeah. Long range where, does it, where does it stop? You know, you, hunting's part. You know. You, a big why do part you do hunting it? is being mm. a sports person. Yeah, it's got to be sporting.
1: Uh, Alex, I mean, if we look at thermal in particular, I'm thinking of the use of thermal, which has become really quite affordable and accessible now, for your everyday stalker. You know, we we all we love to hunt. Yes, there's killing, but we we love everything that goes into it. That's why most of us go hunting, go stalking. Should recreational stalkers be using thermal if it's not as if it's for purposes of recreation?
5: I think in terms of the actual deer management planning itself, when you're looking at your population, what's there, what you want to take off and leave behind, thermal and night vision are another tool to allow you to see in the hours when the deer are active what's actually out there. The law is quite clear, you can't currently use that to control deer, um, but you know, some of the members feel that's wrong and the law should be changed. Our view is in terms of recreation stalking, we're trying to actually make the stalk something that's physically challenging and active, and you're you're pitting wits against a very, very wild quarry. To make it easier like that, I think it's deeply unfair. Now there may be an argument for um, wildlife practitioners, contractors, um, professional stalkers to have that as a tool available to them for specific circumstances under license. Mm -hmm. And that's something that perhaps SNH and Natural England will look at in the future where you can hit an area quite hard, quite quickly, and then leave it in peace. And that's really what you're looking at, uh, in terms of you know, professional, active, dynamic deer control. Um, but in terms of recreational stalking itself, no, um, I, I love gadgets, I love my kit, um, but I also like traditional walnut and blued metal too. And this is my traditional walnut mentality, is that um, as a tool for counting and analyzing the population, yes, for the shooting itself, no
6: in the wrong hands it could be disastrous it, mm. it would have to be like you say licensed yeah. it, it is that is actually
1: one of my one of my concerns is that it would as with anything it can be abused and it, it it is very easy for anybody who's used thermal it is very easy to abuse thermal especially when it comes to deer if you're in that mind i mean don what, what's your personal view on it do you do you use it while stalking or uh,
4: as a spotter yeah i think i think it has a place um i mean let, let's, yeah just spotter let, is what i'm talking let's about let's then. be honest um you know, people have been abusing lamps for deer yeah. for decades anyway, and it's <laughs> yeah. that that, still that's actually illegal it, it is, without a license, but it is still, a, you know, an effective tool for poachers in order to, to yeah. put deer on the deck. I, I'm kind of a bit ambivalent from, from a personal point of view for the kind of the, the enjoyment of being out stalking. I'm not a huge fan, but I, from a pro- professional's point of view, from a guide's point of view, if you have pressure to deliver for a client and this is a tool that can help deliver a result for a paying customer, okay. I can see the appeal there. Yeah. Um, also, the, there's a kind of new breeding, you know, as the deer population has grown, as the number of stalkers has increased, people who don't have a huge amount of time, they want to go out and they want to get results on, on the ground, and they might see this as a way to improve their efficiency um, when they don't necessarily have the time to improve their skills and, yeah. and putting the hours on the floor. It
3: might mean we don't need to reintroduce links. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: Quite possibly. Just put a thermal on everyone. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just
3: for an example for how useful the thermal tools are, um, just last week we were stalking um, Munchak, Ended up going into rough bush just after we shot it, and the thermal is what found it for us. Yeah, so yeah. things like that, yeah, was, you very, know, very you good point, point, tool. Actually, That's a very yeah. good
1: point. The, the, that, yeah. that replaces the need to keep a dog.
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, I think that the consensus is that used for the right things, great. Used for management, fantastic. But there's maybe a personal ethical question about should you really be using it all the time? What about uh, the people standing outside? Has anybody got a a view on the use of thermal or technology and where it's taken us? Anybody at all? Rory? Well, oh, sorry, we've got a gentleman in front here. No, 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 absolutely, carry on.
4: With well, technology,
1: you've got the drones. it will be drone spot index. So. Yeah, where does it end exactly? <laughs> say, where, where does where it, it end? To Draw the line. That's oh. for the for the, the you recording. Drone
0: into your
3: well we could just shoot the drones and there's yeah. a spot in itself. <laughs> but you as a stalker, don't you don't need to choose to use any of the technology, do you? So it's a choice, isn't it? In some ways, I, mean, I
2: think it raises good points about creating a code of conduct. I think we need that for stalking, we need that for wildfowling, we need that for all of the sports we enjoy. So I think it comes at quite a sort of appropriate time in a way for us yeah, to well think said. about yeah. these things. Uh, and raise these questions. That's a
4: really strong point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the, it's such a such a prickly, such as is it, the kind of your own personal ethics? Yeah, yeah. Of what, yeah what you yeah. get out of the sport? You know, mm. how do you feel about big bag days for pheasant shooting? You know, really, yes. yes. it, it, it's, it's a real difficult thing. It has to be a personal judgment on. You know, but it's a, it's a conversation. It's a with...
2: conversation, and you get to a sort of conclusion from having these conversations, and it's a good time to have these conversations. Yeah.
1: Okay. If there's uh, no one else wanting questions from the. You if, got you, have
3: to, if oh. you have to use thermal
1: to get to kill you, you're doing it all wrong yeah. so the, the gentleman in the, in the audience is saying if you need to use thermal then you're probably doing it wrong, are you talking about from a sort of a personal yeah, for enjoyment you, aspect not, like the gentleman said there if, you, if you're for a you're under pressure to, to like deliver a kill for them mm. well, yeah i mean I that's, it's a very it's, it's a it's a fair point i mean i can, i understand dom's point about people being under pressure and then you you've just said that it's that's not what it's all about so if, it, if the result that you want is a result every time and to get that you need to use thermal then are you really hunting for the right reasons and are you doing it right it's uh yeah it's a, it's a very
3: good point. i
6: think for going back to the original question for recreational stock stockers no for perhaps professional stalkers, or to get on top of this, you know, absolutely massive deer population that we've got at the moment, then perhaps.
2: But again, just arguably, if you don't have a dog, you know, now it's affordable, should every stalker have thermal in their kit bag? Like the other day, I was stalking with Dom, and I fluffed a shot on a muntjac, uh, then the guy I was with spent all night looking for that Muntjac, found that Muntjac, but if we had had Thermal, we didn't have a dog, we would have found it a lot more quickly than, than they did. So there's I a sort be. of element of responsibility uh, if it is affordable to have it.
6: Why didn't you look for it, you son? I
2: had to go. I had to get a train. <laughs> <laughs> we've all thought shots at Muntjac.
5: <laughs> yeah, if we've uh, a shot, usually, usually the, the
6: rule is that you go and look for
3: it,
1: you <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay, no, nothing else from the audience? Nope? Okay, next thing, um, social media and the hunting, fishing, shooting world. No. So, positives and
4: negatives. Oh, Dom is scrunching <laughs> up his face there. Don't worry, Dom. I'm not going to start with you. Oh, please don't feel feel free, but it might be a long rant. <laughs> okay, uh, no, I'm going
1: to I'm going to start with Rachel here. So, you you probably more than anyone sitting on this panel will have seen the high the highs and lows of what social media can do. I mean, it's a, it yes. is and has been a powerful tool for good and for bad. What's your opinion on it?
6: Yeah, I mean, again, it's objective. It depends how you use it. So I've um, probably one of the first people kind of in the hunting, shooting industry in the UK um, saw the opportunity to use social media um, as a promotional tool. So uh, in the early days, when people didn't quite understand it, they thought it was a promotional tool for myself, but in fact, it was more to try and kind of promote shooting. So when I started shooting sort of eight years ago, the first shooting ground I went to, um, I was kind of, where are all the women? Where are all the young guys? Where are all, you know, why is there such a massive generation gap? And one, obviously social media is one of the most powerful marketing tools that we have um, in modern times. So why not use it? So why not use it to kind of try and make shooting, not just clay shooting, but you know, shooting, hunting, anything as a whole more appealing. Um, that kind of snowballed for me into um, I was attacked online about four years ago for posting a photo of a Chinese water deer that I'd that I'd hunted. Um, And I was actually attacked from someone in the shooting fraternity. And his point was, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. It's damaging for for the image of hunting, you know, to post. And I was like, but we're not doing anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Why would you want to hide that? You know, I've I've got up off my backside. I've gone out. I've stalked a deer. I've eaten it. You know, and and I'm proud of that fact. I'm proud of it. I've invested my time, energy, and, you know, money and effort and everything into you know, doing what I did. So I really, um, I'm my dad's daughter, you know, good old Yorkshireman. um, And rather than kind of take the photo down and hide, I actually responded. Now the response to him, um, I made sure I put in, you know, all all of the the benefits of of what I'd done. And that kind of went a little bit viral and went around the world. And I kind of made, I found a talent in myself, I felt, for, for being able to speak out um, I did feel like people kind of listened to me at first, and I did draw attention because I was female, because I'm blonde, because I'm not your stereotypical, you know, hunting shooting um, guy. Everybody back then, if you if, if I said to one of my friends, describe a hunting or you know a hunting or shooting person, and they'd say, oh, you know, flat cap, whip it, you know, big burly guy. They didn't expect expect that. So I've used that as kind of a way to promote and encourage um, people. And that's how I use social media to this day. So I try and make um, country sports, um, you know, appeal to a wider audience and I reach a wider audience. The other day, one of my dad's friends went to the barber shop in uh, Harrogate and he came out and he rang my dad and he said, the guys in there were asking me about shooting. They know about. They know I shoot. I've been to this barber shop for kind of eight years. He said, and they asked me about shooting for the first time off their own back. And I, and I asked them why, and they said, "Oh, well, there's this really hot blonde on Instagram that's making it look cool, so we now all want to have a go." So that to me can only be a positive if you're reaching wider audiences and you know saying the right things, putting the right you know the the, the positives, put the put the good information out there use social media correctly it can only be a, it can only be a good
5: thing uh,
1: and for for fear of not letting anybody else speak dumb
6: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> your take I, As, I mean you're you're in the i mean you're kind of it, you're in that world professionally anyway oh uh, yeah so i'm a traditional print journalist that that's been you know my entire working life and uh, uh it's been a, a challenge for everybody in my sector to try and work out how we use social media in in a way to continue to make a living. Um, Social media has lots of positives. It's a great way to connect everybody, to share interests, to put yourself in touch, to promote your business. Um, But there are some kind of fundamental issues with how it's used. And especially when it comes to hunting, you are effectively your own publisher. Whereas if I put something on which is untrue in the magazine or um, defame somebody or is, potentially uh, presents a legal issue i'm going to lose my job you know i am accountable for my actions by uh, by by the law of the land you're effectively your own publisher on social media so you're the person that's making the that ethical decision do i show this photo of a fox that i've blown up with a 22250 you know do i put that i've shot a giraffe you know so these are these are some of the problems and Of course the anti-brigade, as we know, are looking for any opportunity to jump on negative publicity for shooting. And so this is where some of the areas, you know, I think need looking at and we need to be careful because, you know, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing the sport, the wider sport and and Rachel's obviously very responsible about how she goes about it and she's also got a very powerful voice uh, on social media. Some people don't care, some people aren't interested, some people want to be provocative. So it's how we control it and make people accountable for their actions on social Absolutely. media. I think, I, think of
6: self, um, I think we've got to self-police, and I, I did that a while ago where I had this rule, so if if in my newsfeed in Facebook any kind of gory, disrespectful photo kind of came up in my... I deleted them because I don't yeah. want to see that in my news feed, and I can imagine that no one else does. Um, and I actually... Put, put it out there to people and said that you know we need to be responsible no yeah. egotistical you know blood and guts with you know it's, it's not hard you know if you want to share a hunt that you've been on it's not hard to you know show that yeah. that animal's been shown respect
2: it's um right. it's quite it's quite interesting i don't know if you guys are all aware but countryside alliance ran a campaign or running a campaign to stop online abuse yeah. um so i run the shooting times twitter account we've got about twenty five thousand followers it's a pretty active place and we see almost no abuse at all because we don't engage with it. We just make our Twitter account a positive place to be. You know, every week we might get two or three comments that are trying to provoke a, a reaction, right from Chris Packham to some guy who's got 43 followers and probably lives with his mum somewhere. But we just don't bother engaging <laughs> exactly. with any of it. It's polls. It's pictures of people's kids training gun dogs. Um, and it, talking about the anti-brigade, I think online we've got to be very careful not to perpetuate a sort of us-and-them narrative. We want to, as Rachel was saying, communicate um, the sort of inclusivity of our world uh, for the future of shooting, that's how shooting will survive. Yeah, that's, a,
1: a really, that's another, another really great point, about inclusivity is something we'll, I think we'll get to later, but it's making it relatable making what we do relatable to people who don't do what we do. Yeah. but that the is the only of, way that we a will be able stereotype. You know,
2: Rachel was saying a stereotype of someone who, shoot, look around you here. You know, we aren't all the same. We aren't all a homogenous bunch. We're not all a homogenous bunch here and you the guys aren't there. all by around. the way. The only one Alex, from an organisational standpoint,
1: you must see this causing issues. It must have caused you headaches I imagine at some point in the past.
5: Yeah, we've had the misuse num- of it. We've a number of social media issues um, in the past where um, people who've never met you are quite happy to criticise you and yet they meet you in person a year later and all of a sudden the best thing ever. Um, very, very strange. But um, social media, a lot of common sense, you said, can be a very, very positive platform if it's managed correctly. But when it's done negatively, it's worse than you know, anything else in the shooting industry. It is a major threat to the future. I feel and, like um, I, I would actually recommend, as much as Patrick suggested, a code of practice for recreational stalking. Great idea. Um, Maybe even a code of practice for common sense use of social media. I yeah, feel we, like I yeah. could
6: write that. I feel like I'm the most qualified on here to actually sit and write that because I've, I've um, seen both sides of it. So I see people, and early, early on, I, I used to do it myself. I'd engage. You know, someone would comment on my photo. be like, oh, you just die, die, and all of this. Beep, 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 I'd be like, you know, excuse me. You know, you can't. And what I learned is just delete and block them. It's so easy. Delete and block them. And I I don't want negativity on my page. I want, like you were saying, you want it to be just a positive feed of positive, you know. And and I do write quite a lot about conservation and positives and stuff. And that's the way to filter information through. It's not not arguing and it's not name-calling. It's putting the positives out there. And I found when I did the Jodie Marsh TV show, kind of 80% of people... They just don't know any different. They don't know the yeah. information. If you give it to them, they can make their own decisions. And I will say one thing, since I did that show, and I, and I did have two minds about doing it, since I did that show, I've probably not seen an anti-comment on, on my social media. It's really strange. It's kind of it's gone quiet. I think I've scared them all off. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'd, I'd like to leave it with a positive. work that you, what you guys have done is a cracking example of Competent use of social media mm. where you can see some of the comments from people who may not want to go out and hunt, fish, or shoot, but they watch the films or listen to the podcasts, they get what you're doing, why you're doing it, and they make comments. Well, I, I understand now what you're doing, I support your right to do it, I just don't want to go and do it myself. Fair enough. Mm. Yeah, no, that absolutely fair enough. And yeah. just as a sort of a final word to wrap this up, uh, Sarah.
3: Yeah, no, I just think it's um, nowadays it, it, we have a duty. Uh, as hunters as shooters if we are going to share our experiences with people we have to explain exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it and it's not just to go out there and shoot something you have to tell the picture tell the whole story for people to understand exactly what we're doing i personally find twitter and um, i run the national gamekeepers organization um, twitter feed so you can imagine we get quite a lot of anti-abuse on there um, and we do exactly the same as shooting times; it gets deleted and blocked. We don't want to. We don't want to listen to it because some of the people who are on, on social media are, are very extreme, and they come across mm. extreme. They don't really do themselves much favors when you actually read some of their arguments because they're not really arguments, uh, and we find them... The rant, to be. It. it's a rant. It's a rant. It's very much a rant, and it's it's a very emotive subject, isn't it? What we do, um, but if we just take that little bit of extra time, that when we do post that photo. We put an explanation behind it and say exactly why we're doing it, and I just think that would be so much more powerful. And I think you know, with gamekeepers certainly, they're getting better at it. I mean, we've got moorland groups and you know these different groups of keepers getting together now and sharing what they're doing. Yeah, because people of just don't understand. You know, you just don't. You go up on the fells, you don't understand why someone's setting it alight. But if you put explanations the, about it, the it's amount helpful. of kind of. Um, even to this day, vegans,
6: vegetarians—you know—the the least likely people you'd ever—and if I could print out all of the messages I've got, I could write a book. And it's people who say, "We, we never—you know—we never thought we actually—we just—we so think it's—you know—Jody herself sat there and said, "This is actually what you guys do is actually much better than what avatars do or what you know people sat talking to." And it's—and it's nice. One thing I would like to just put on the end of that. <laughs> So all of the abuse that I've had um, from aunties, like you say, it's always in words and it's always it's keyboard warriors and, and touch wood, I mean, I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but nothing's ever um, come of any death Influed. threats or threats yeah. of violence of mine. The one problem that I have, have ever had that's turned into something um, in my life was actually from a fellow shooter. So it's quite interesting, interesting, you know.
5: I think, actually, we've all got stories about that, whether it's greed or dysfunctionality, not entirely sure, but uh, we are a community that should be working hard to represent and support each other, mm. definitely and, yeah. um, and more of that in the future. Yes.
1: What about from, uh, from the people uh, standing outside? Any experiences that you want to share social media, your view on its use, or misuse, or abuse? Mm. Okay, well, <laughs> in that case, I'm sure you do, but you're just too shy. Okay, so we'll move on to the, the next subject, which I think is going to tie in uh, somewhat with sort of some of the other things that we've been talking about, which is, should there be more of a focus um, in this country on wild game shooting rather than reared, and you can even throw into that bag limits? This is about the sort of self-imposing best practice, if you like. Um, Patrick, let's,
2: uh, let's start with you. Um, it's not an issue that I have a sort of set view on. I'm sort of interested in the idea of kind of big-bag apologism, if there is such a term. I think if you are shooting, say, 350-brace day on a grouse mall, if you've got the numbers to do it, you have to have a great team of keepers, uh, you've got to have a healthy population of birds if you're doing it sustainably, and you have to have a very good team of guns. There's nothing wrong with doing that if you can then sell those birds at the end of the day. Uh, personally, my ideal day is a sort of 50-bird day, a mixed-species day, probably ending up with some duck-flighting in the evening. Um, but I don't think that we should kowtow to a, a narrative of, of big bags being awful, uh, because then where does that sort of end? And there are a huge number of people employed uh, by estates who are putting on these big-bag days, uh, and if it went the other way and it was kind of one man and his dog walking up a hedgerow, suddenly that industry would sort of flounder and people would be out of jobs. I mean, Alex, comparing the
1: emphasis that we put on uh, reared sport, if you want to use that word, or
5: wild game, I mean, what's what's your opinion on that? My angle there is the the food product at the end. So if you're going to shoot it, you need to eat it. And if you're shooting more than you can actually eat, that's a major issue. So um, everything should be sustainable. Whatever we do, whether it's pest control or, 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 or shooting reared game or shooting wild game, it should be sustainable and um, I think the fact we having discussion about it is a really, really healthy thing. None of us are ever 100% right, but I think together as a community, we have an open discussion. We can take it forward. Sarah?
3: Yeah, no, I agree. If it's, it's, it's all about if the game is going to be eaten at the end of it, I don't have a problem because I see there's a place for commercial shoots, there's a place for smaller shoots. It all fits in and it's land use, we're using the land, we're working off the land, there's jobs created. I don't have a problem with... um, The
2: question, I think, (laughs) in some ways, is not, are the bags that we're shooting too big, but how can we get people to eat more game? Because if we can get people to eat more game, it actually sort of makes
4: that first question completely
2: redundant.
3: Absolutely. It's a marketability, it's
4: not. Not? Um, Commercial game shooting, especially in in the UK, does raise some some fairly difficult questions for us as as an industry because we are introducing vast numbers of effectively foreign species into our wild spaces. We're feeding them, we're concentrating the numbers, uh, we're treating them for illnesses and diseases which have become endemic within the populations. So it's in some ways quite an easy aspect of our sport to attack. Um, and you know, I think that that ability to to link what we do with an end product is very important. I think people understand that. People wanting to shoot for the food, um, but I think the kind of you know we, we do need to make sure the, that, that our ethics and our practices in terms of rearing the birds that it doesn't become industrial mm. yeah. factory farming then, of, of, of wild yeah, game. Absolutely. Wild game. I we're, mean,
3: we we're, we're big at the moment pushing the um, code of good shooting practice. At the moment, that's something that's big that we want you know everyone to adopt and everyone does adopt it everyone does follow the code of practice but sometimes we've just got to push it out a little bit more and that covers things like that you know stocking rates and
4: but you know in, in other areas of field sports you know we, we've got you'd go to a trout farm quite happily catch a fish that have been reared for sport mm-hmm. yeah um uh but i think perhaps there there's a closer link between taking your catch home for the pot um and i think you know we do need to make sure that we continue to stress the importance of this product going back into the food chain.
0: Uh, Me me and Byron, uh, when we were at an estate earlier in this year, and a a prime example of, they obviously saw the birds aren't making a lot of money, uh, and they might not necessarily have enough people to give them to, uh, so what they did, decided, was that all the pheasants would be prepared on site, and they were all given to the homeless shelters in Aberdeen, so, you
1: know, initiatives like that, your food is going somewhere. Yeah since Daryl's mentioned it we should probably actually just mention it it was Glen Fiddick Estate uh, John McKenzie's the head keeper there and that was a, his own brainchild he put it to his boss and he said absolutely look, we're basically getting no money and a great for... good
4: news story for shooting as yeah, well. yeah, it's, it's yeah fantastic
1: it's, uh, there are loads of stories like that
2: going on but we just nobody knows about them yeah. um, so I think they know, sort I'll of need to be concentrated I think as well these stories kind of pop up from time to time and little projects are launched but they never seem to really kind of break through yeah. uh, in a way that they should when you know food bank use is at an all-time it, high, it
3: really doesn't help that when anti-shooters see the story, they say, "Oh, they can't even get rid of it." They're just yeah, that it is a problem. And is, for yeah. them to turn that good story, a new story about like you know donating game to homeless people, for them to turn it round into a bad thing, to me, is, just shows that's how extremely sometimes, they can sometimes do. you
0: can't win though. That, no, that's you the really problem. Can't. But, but saying that, I mean, uh, the example <laughs> I, I gave there of the state giving to the homeless shelters in Aberdeen. There's another example of the Anglis Glen's Merlin Group. Merlin group. Um, uh, just before Christmas, they decided we're going to do hampers all paid for uh, worth, I don't know, 30, 40 pounds each to make sure that every person that needed a Christmas meal around the area got one. And they actually struggled to get a charity to take the game meat. And there was various reasons that were not good reasons, uh, one being uh, the, the, the risks involved in cooking game meat. What what risks? Uh, and eventually they found a charity in Montrose that uh, covered the whole area, that took the, the entire lot. And that meant 100 people got Christmas dinner. And they bought the vegetables and uh, the game, all prepared with menus and how to cook it. Uh, And, you know, these are little initiatives that the shooting industry is doing that might not necessarily the rest of the world knows that's going on. I think you just said it
6: right there when when you say, you know, what risk with game meat? Just so much more needs to be done to educate people and to encourage more consumption of game meat. I'd I'd love to see, you know, not just a fad um, when you go into a supermarket over Christmas. I'd love to see a lot more game on supermarket shelves. And the only way to do that is to... To, you know, to, to sell what we do more to the public, to sell this idea of, you know, look, it's sustainable, it's ethical, healthy. you know, going back to what Dom says, you know, is it good for the image of shooting to have, you know mass amounts of birds out, there's, no, there's kind of very little data out there to show that, you know, mass release numbers of pheasants are affecting you know, if anything it helps wild bird populations because they also feed the wild birds when they feed the pheasants so, to me, I think sometimes it can be a bit of a class war but within shooting, so someone who can't necessarily afford to go on a 500 bird day, 300 bird day, 100, whatever, you know, it can sometimes be a bit kind of spiteful toing and throwing. Me personally, there's a place for both. I've been on a 350 bird day. I've been on a walked up day where I've shot two pheasants. Both days were absolutely equally, you know, as enjoyable to me for different reasons. You know, I'll do anything, pigeon shooting, wildfowling. It, it all has its place. We just need to make sure it's sustainable, good practices followed. Um, the commercial estates needed to provide, you know, much of the kind of two-point whatever billion it is that shooting brings into the economy. One of those is the big commercial estates. We're bringing in, you know, tourism, people from outside of the country. They don't have driven shooting in many other countries as we are, are able to put it on. Um, on our landscapes and our fantastic estates that we have, it's always been pheasant shooting in this country really has always been from a commercial standpoint because it it was brought about in order to keep the estates alive. They had to you know bring in it as a land use to, to pay you know to, for the land to pay its way. So I don't think we should it. I think we should just as I say work on f- making sure. I mean I've never been to a game estate where they can't place and sell all of their pheasants to go into the food chain. I know right now the game's not selling, you know, for the best money, but it still ends up at a game dealer's. So let's work together um, at encouraging, you know, more use more, of game meat on a wider scale. Yeah. yeah. I
5: think there's an angle there for also making the actual processing side of it more accessible. Um, properties, shoots working together to actually Absolutely, process game, yeah. yeah. and um, you know one of the best sausages that anybody will eat, apart from goose sausage, is a pheasant sausage, the cracking yeah, yeah. Uh, or yeah. pheasant burger, so yeah. you can start, and you can provide that for people, then you've got something that's really easy to cook at uh, 8 o'clock at night, you just come back from the office. So.
1: Yeah. Is there, Alex, do you think that there is, um, if we take a, a, the personal responsibility approach as a shooter, so you go to, if we want to call it a big bird day or a big bag day, Should there be a personal responsibility on that shooter to actually at least have the conversation? How are you processing? Because one thing is sure as hell, sure. You're not taking all those birds home yourself. Uh, Most of the shooting that I do, and and my brother does certainly, although we we do kindly get invited um, to the odd-driven shoot, is walked-up rough stuff. And everything gets divvied out at the end of the day, either there's to only us or one bird <laughs> the of
3: the day. sometimes. And it's there's
1: in about more. a million pieces. <laughs> you know that everybody who is killed that day is either taking taking home something they saw somebody kill, or they're taking home the stuff they killed themselves. Whereas on the big bag, bag days, or you know, even hundred, you can't. There's a limit to how many pheasants you can eat. You're probably taking home a brace because there's a limit yep. to what you can process yourself. Is there a responsibility at, at, personally as a shooter? So at least take the time to find out
5: where it's going. There's there's, there's an ethical responsibility there um, in in everything we do. And um, definitely the other thing is is if if you can't take a brace home for yourself, or you're flying out somewhere the next day, make sure you pass it on to somebody else. So Mm -hmm. that is then, um, and process it if you possibly can. Plucking pheasants isn't that difficult. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ducks is, but you know, it's different. But um, the challenge there is to really get it into people's minds that this is a very accessible foodstuff it's very tasty and um, we should be eating more of it.
6: There's a few of the game estates where I go to that give you um, a a really nice kind of bag and it has a recipe, it has maybe a little chutney in there or something that goes with the pheasant and it it literally encourages you to go straight home that night and cook it. Um, So, you know, more estates could perhaps be encouraged to do that, more recipe cards, I know Basque are doing the, you know, the taste for game and everything. So just more emphasis on, on, like we say essentially pheasant you know large-scale pheasant shooting is really 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 great free-range chicken rearing isn't it <laughs> it is yeah, yeah. and it's so much more healthier so let's encourage people to to want to eat more of it
1: mm. um two more topics and then uh, we're going to wrap up women in field sports now without mm. going over kind of any of the stuff that we, we kind of already covered uh, with yourself uh, rachel which is uh, you know probably one of the, one of the good examples of that Uh, But if I start with you, Sarah, there's definitely been a rise in females in field sports in the last few years. We've seen it in the States much more so, but it's coming through your Why why do you think that is? And is that... It's obviously a good thing to have more people in, but has there been anything negative off the back of it?
3: No, not at all. I don't think anything... It can't be seen as negative at all, but what I think Rachel answered it before, it is the social media. I really do feel it is. I mean, with the introduction of... um, Femme Fatales and um, Chelsea Bun Club and things like that people are getting more involved in it and once you get them say you get a lady out clay shooting you start introducing and they get you know they um, meet new people and start getting introduced to the stalking side and game shooting and they get into it that way and so I think that's a brilliant way and then you've got a lot of the organizations are doing great initiatives with um ladies shooting and young shots and things like that and getting youngsters into the, the sport well into the industry is absolutely brilliant in my, my eyes I, um,
2: I sort of I think it is immensely positive but I don't think that there are no negatives um, I've shot with girls for much of my life I wouldn't have thought it at all odd at school if we were at a party and half the guns were girls uh, I was doing an interview the other day <coughs> shooting times with Nicholas Soames and he said why are we even having this conversation I've shot with girls all my life. Mm. And there's a slightly kind of patronising tone, I think, now, um, magazines, not us, but magazines are doing sort of like the lady shooting special <laughs> with the lady shooting kit. And look, yeah. there's a lady on the peg. And it's pink. Yeah, it and does. it's pink. Yeah. Of course it's yeah. pink. And then, you know, gun gum companies are launching guns, and fair enough that, you know, the cone might be a little bit higher, but then they're launching these sort of purple advertising campaigns. you know. <laughs> they're just girls who shoot they're just guns they're yeah. just people we call who it shoot
6: shrink it or pink it yeah that's that's how but that's to me success
2: it. will be when actually we stop talking about oh my goodness it's a girl on the page they are hunters I wrote
6: a piece for the field the other day and that's and they asked for a top tip and and I that's one of the points I made don't don't focus on being don't make the focus on being female when I go shooting it Actually annoys me. if They kind of make special, you know, differently yeah, yeah. <laughs> or special. I like I like shooting with the boys. You know, I, I I like shooting the boys. I like getting my hands dirty. I I don't want to be a huntress. I'm a hunter. That's it. I'm not, you know, a lady shot. I'm a shooter. There shouldn't be. It, shooting's one of the. Probably the only sports where men and women can compete on an equal level. There's, there's, you know, there's kind of look at Cheryl Hall. She kicks most of the men's asses. <laughs> yeah, but, mm. Sorry, you will have to put another beat. No, that's the that's all right. It. fine. But so yeah. the point is, you can compete <laughs> yeah. on the same level. No, so but it so is a really so good point. We are quite of,
2: exceptional in that that we can do that, and that's something that we should celebrate. It was a bit of naivety,
6: I think, from the industry because we've had this sudden upsurge and everyone's kind of running around like headless chickens, trying to know how to respond. We need products, and and it does go back to the shrink yeah, yeah. or pink it. Now, if I buy anything. That's to fit me, and it's got pink on. I get the old black sharpie out, and it gets kind of rubbed out
5: <laughs> because quite, I
6: don't like pink.
5: It's quite sad that a few years ago, so there was an Naver one of the shooting magazines with um, one of the big cartridge manufacturers, now owned by a foreign company, um, that had pink cartridges. Yeah, that's oh. And I, yeah. as soon I saw that, I, I just I
6: like "What
5: are we doing? This is not the way forward."
6: Perhaps to to appeal to you know the younger girls, little girls who you know and and you know let's not be anti-pink because you know some <laughs> girls
5: there are think, other colors <laughs> available <laughs> but, but
6: yeah j- just let's not kind of think that you've got to paint everything pink so
0: we've got um, a good friend uh, from norway and she wrote a blog post about it and she's been hunting her entire life and before the kind of upsurge of more female hunters she wrote a good blog post about um, I think the title was um, I, uh, carry, "Carry Your Own Rifle," and, and she refuses to let anyone carry anything for her just because they think she, she can't because she's, yeah. she's a woman get, in, in hunting.
3: I get this so much. Yeah. I do a lot of loading, and you'll be surprised at how many guys you get there to load, aren't you? You carry the kit. Yeah, and they want you carry the, carry the kit, and everyone's you. like, "Oh no, you can't carry that." And I'm like, "This is my job." But essentially, anyway.
2: yeah. <laughs> I think what we're all saying is that it's great that more women are shooting, and that the shooting community is starting to think about it, but we need to kind of come up to date. We're yeah. sort of doing yeah. woman Treat in sport, everybody equal, Caturizing but 20 years it. in the past. Yeah. You know, you need to sort of stop mansplaining as, as you know. It's, but I do it's think
3: the clubs that are out there ha- have done a fantastic job at getting yeah. into it. No,
2: I, yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think they have, but I think it has to be done in, in the right way. And I don't think we're quite Fem- doing it in the right way. Yeah. We
6: may we, um, the the reason why I co-founded Femme with Lydia, um, <coughs> who's marketing for Gamebot, I don't actually have anything to do with the running of the club. It was and and the the only reason we kind of started the club. Um, I get a lot of ladies who, you know, how we've seen what you do. We'd really like to have a go at shooting, and I used to pass them on to Chelsea Bun Club. Now Chelsea Bun Club's branding is is pink and very feminine, which is look, but it is you know it's it is a nice and obviously it's appeals a to, a, to a hell of a lot, lot of women. Because, <laughs> you know the club's done so well but a few um, there's obviously a niche market there as well because a few women came back and went it's all a little bit pink and girly for me you know I, I kind of like what you do It's kind of looks badass and cool so we developed Fem Patals and that's how we branded it we did the kind of cool you know the cool appealing to you know women who liked the other mm. side But the point is, both of those clubs now kind of cover every demographic of of women that there are in the UK. So the next widened. So there's a place. So there is a place for, you know, for both.
4: And Dom, how's your uh, pink wardrobe? Uh, (laughs) It is comprehensive, actually. I do do like a terracotta and a salmon. Um, I mean, I I work in an office full of of lady shooters. Um, I'm the only guy on the team of the magazine on the editorial side. Um, so it's nothing out of the ordinary to me. I'm I'm not critical of the industry, actually, for launching specific products for... In the same way as if I was going to buy a product for my son, I'd want to buy something that was the right size, the right weight, that fit Mm. him and his physique. Uh, I'm not critical of of the industry as a whole to introduce more female-specific products. I think that's to be applauded, whether it's the cut of the clothes or the way they design the guns to be better for female shooters and to allow them to shoot more comfortably. Um, I think in in Europe, interestingly, where they, they, they have... About 15 or 20 percent of people taking the hunting qualifications are now female hunters. Um, but when House can launch their new range of uh, custom moderators where you could choose any color of anodizing, the most popular color is Rachel
6: Pink. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's um. It, there's a place there's a place for both there? there is a place for Scandinavian <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're like all turning into pinkish
1: so last topic um, which is uh, maybe on a more, a more more serious note possibly um, the future of deer management and recreational stalking in the UK P- particularly up in, in Scotland we're hearing a lot of Talk and conversation from government about where they're, the direction that they're wanting to take our deer management. We've just had reports recently out. And it doesn't necessarily make for a very comfortable reading for people who have uh, been involved in it for a very long time. And it's not necessarily the, the what we might see as the correct direction. So if I can start with Alex on this, maybe just to give an overview and an opinion of where we're we're sitting and what the potential future holds for us in Scotland, but that is
5: equally applicable in in England as well. I think the um, review that's conducted recently was um, blown out of all proportion. And actually given that the evidence base we're working from the, the, the few years that deer management groups had to change track, um, were not long enough that the, the actual review itself was incompetent. But it had to be done because that was the um, process that the Scottish Government wanted to um, to be seen to be done at the time. I hear an awful lot about the fact that there are too many deer in Scotland. Well, there may be in certain localised areas where you've got local abundance, but in many areas you've got too few deer. And the sustainable deer management isn't just about going out there and and shooting deer, sometimes about going out and actually saying we're not going to take too much of a cull this year because the numbers are too low. We are concerned that a number of NGOs out there, um, as in uh, charities, uh, c- conservation charities, are over sh- culling for their own political purposes. Deer are a native, um, red and broad deer native species. They deserve our respect. They may very well have been here long before us. And it's si- sickening to me to see the way that they're actually being treated. Um, We are very keen to drive forward a position in Scotland where deer are actually regarded as an equal to us. They have a place in the landscape, as do we, and it's time that we stop treating them as pests. And I'm very, very cross with the way that certain people in the media portraying the current deer review. Lowland sector roe deer slightly different. It is time for a fresh approach and we are great proponents. I've, I've been proponents in nineteen ninety-seven about this, about getting more public land out there available in terms of stalking, recreational stalking, uh, for local people. So, if you've got public land local to you, my view is that's a wild resource that should be used by local people should they wish to have it.
1: Yeah, uh, we have an incredible. I, I can I can speak for Scotland, which is where I live. But uh, we have a, a, an incredible resource, which in almost any other part of the the world would be heralded as an amazing conservation triumph, is what we have there. We have healthy populations and great numbers, and yet it seems to have been turned on its head. Um, uh, Sarah?
3: I, I fully agree with both yourself and Alex. It's um, it's criminal how they're treating, how some of the review and, and people are taking the review of, of, of seeing deer as. It's, it, it's absolutely disgraceful that we are seeing an animal that belongs there, it's been there for a long, long time. That we don't see that as val—it's such a valuable animal to Scotland, to the economy, to the well, to the um, environment, and for them to be trying to see them as such a bad thing and the way they treat them, I just think is absolutely disgraceful. And it's happening in the in England as well, you know. And we're getting groups saying that there's far too many and they need to be culled. They need to be culled harder, harder, harder. I just think it's an absolute... To make crazy. way for people, normally. Yes. <laughs> Which, yeah. well, uh, but, but traffic, Alex does yeah. make a very
1: good point, is that there needs to be a balance, is that an we balance. humans and, and deer, we live in the same landscape. Yeah. So yes, obviously they do need cold, but there's a very there's negative connotations when it comes
2: to deer, uh, yeah. uh, Patrick? I agree with Alex as well. I think talking about it as a sort of community resource uh, and how I think it's a good way to get more people involved in the sport. Uh, it's, it's something that people are very aware of. And, Red deer, particularly such a sort of iconic animal, uh, and if we can get people involved in stalking and in deer management uh, through stalking and through, I think that would be a very good thing. Rachel,
6: yeah, just. Oh, you like to stalk <laughs> I do, yeah, and and it is a shame that you know we know we've got the highest deer population you know that we've ever had, I think, as the figure goes, but. That doesn't mean we need to kind of start running around like headless chickens, you know, and put in huge call numbers and and treating them um, almost kind of like an industrial, you know, an industrial, like a pest. You know, they're an iconic species specifically, obviously, to to Scotland. They do bring in a lot of tourism tourism revenue. And if we've got more of it, then we should be doing more to promote that and to bring more people in and, and make Stalking available to more recreational stalkers. You know, open the estates. Do more to create more opportunities um, for people to get into not just not just the kind of taking of a deer either. It'd be nice to see more um, put more emphasis put on management. So so surveying and and all you know everything else, everything that's involved in management of deer, not just the kind of you know come and shoot one. Um, I'd like to see more education initiatives available that's not so kind of daunting, maybe in bite size. I've got the Deer Initiative Manual, um, you know, the big one, that you get for 20 pounds, it's brilliant. It comes with kind of laminated pages, and it fascinates me. But it's something that myself, as a recreational stalker, I don't kind of get the opportunity to go and put in into not place. The so there's commercial opportunities for people to create perhaps deer management courses, but
3: small bite-sized ones for yeah. recreational stalkers. Just a question, and this is something to ask you all. Um, do you know the um, qualifications you were talking about in Germany? Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a place for that in oh, the UK? Oh, yes. at all? Something similar? I mean, I'm not saying it. Mm. I just,
4: uh,
1: maybe yes. just explain that qualification, Don, before. for so, those so people mo-
4: Most European countries have to pass a hunting exam in order to be granted uh, permission to own a firearm and, and to hunt. Um, and of course, in the UK, it's a voluntary system. Um, There are some great qualifications, DSC, 20,000 people now have done the DSC course. That's purely voluntary. I think the the problem, any organisation that proposes in order to hunt in the UK, you must do this examination, is going to come in for some fairly serious fight from the shooting fraternity, because, you know, we face enough obstacles to get our guns. Um, I I think at the the moment, a voluntary scheme is probably all we're going to be able to get away with. But anything that shows that we are a responsible sport, and that we're doing everything we can to make sure we hunt ethically and that we are well-trained presents the sport in the right light.
6: It would perhaps be something that came if they did open... You know, kind of run similar schemes to New Zealand, America, where they did open public land, where you would have to show a level of competence. You know, not anyone can just sling a rifle on the back and go out there. So it might be something that's brought but in a step. Stat- public
4: tree. land in, in, certainly, south of, uh, of the border is just... You know, we don't have enough of it here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think,
2: in many ways, it's a good thing. It's like what what you're saying is that there's a there's a kind of idea in this country that if you shoot it's you know, someone has had to show you how to shoot, like your father or whatever. If you're just a member of the public who doesn't come from a shooting background who wants to get into shooting, how do you learn all these things? How do you know how to prepare a carcass, right down to you know what you do when you half shot a pheasant and it's running across the ground? I think courses um, uh, and codes of practice would be a very good thing uh, in improving the image of shooting and allowing people to get into shooting. And of course, you buy problems? magazines. Oh, of course, To say what you're saying there, Patrick, I think probably what is
1: quite key to what you're saying there. Uh, is that these are courses where we must be conscious of the fact that we mustn't always direct our messages for hunters. Because we already understand, we're already converted, we already buy into it. Mm. We need things like that which are accessible to people who... You know, but if I man, wanted I to get, even look what a if I wanted like, to get
2: yeah. into golf, I would go. You know, I'm awful at golf. I have no interest in golf. But if I wanted to get into golf, I would go and do lessons. I would go on a course or something like that. If you want to get into into rough shooting, if you want to get into snipe shooting with spaniels. How do you do that? It's a bit of a sort of like closed shop. You know. Yeah. by the shooting times and we tell you how to do it <laughs>
6: <laughs> which it goes full circle to what we were talking about earlier going right back to using social media there's actually yeah. a girl who stood in the audience Sophie I think your name is who's obsessed with deer and I follow <laughs> oh, you brilliant. on Instagram and I, yeah, I do and it's lovely to see because it's not something you expect and you're doing deer management and yeah. gamekeeping. Yeah. Brilliant. see if more young girls Sophie's you know she's pretty pretty she, she's enthusiastic she's so enthusiastic I, I like looking at your photos she takes photos of the deer and they all look really cute but she's also very versed on the fact that they need managing and she's got a rifle on her back and if more young girls and more kind of whites you know out there saw this let's, that's what we need to encourage we need to encourage this yeah, um, and,
1: yeah sorry, sorry carry on
6: no 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 it's fine no <laughs>
1: Oh, sorry, I thought you were just coming to a close like I was just going to say, because I know that uh, people are probably going to need to get away. Is there, was there any last comments from the panel just before oh, I open up to the I'll floor? I'll just
5: finish off that, that last bit there. So we need to start thinking about dear impacts, not dear numbers. In order, the the conservationists talk about that constantly anyway, so that's fine. On the other side, um, these courses, best practice is a good thing. So, more incentivisation and, and investment, best practice. And in terms of uh, mandatory courses, then be careful what you wish for. Yep. Because if you think about hunter skill sets, etc. that will become a firearms licensing safety test. Mm. So it might be something you want. I don't know, I'll do it with the, with the tax It already is to a degree
2: good. though, it already yeah. is. Yeah.
6: Talking about deer impact assessment, they've just, um, I, I can't remember who did it. There's been a study released where they did 3D imaging and they found that they can now assess, so not only the impacts of obviously where the deer browse, so below, they've actually done it so that in the canopy of the trees, they can see the effect that it's having on um, songbirds and you know so that's obviously something that's being developed it's it's we in the use used it as a tool but, yeah. yeah better better damage assessments being done just
1: to close up there, because uh, i'm conscious that people need to get away uh, is there any questions from the people who are still here some of who have been here the entire time so congratulations does anybody want to ask any it doesn't have to be a last question any questions at all to the panel
4: just saying about the um, also, a competency course. When I got my license, I was asked asking you what you're doing. And yes, I do. But they're sort of assuming that you're not telling a lie or anything like that. In this country where we are so close, there's uh, landed areas small and there are people everywhere. Should there be a, a more of a course where people actually understand what they're doing inadvertently? Is this a prior, prior to
1: owning a firearm you're talking about? Yeah,
4: yeah. When they, Sorry, when, uh, when you first.
6: Yeah. I think at the very least there should just be a short safety test. I, I, when I started shooting, I, I wanted to be safe so much that I, that I voluntarily took myself and did the Basque safe shot, and it was, cost me £10. And I was more than happy to do that, and I think a lot of people would be more than happy to do that. And and it would be good to see, and it would be good overall for the image of shooting in the media to show that we're self-policing. Because it's only a matter of time before they're, they're going to end up, they'll force you to do it, they'll, they'll, force, they'll impose it on the shooting industry
2: it's being proactive and us actually saying this is what the course should look like rather than having a course imposed on us which has been devised by someone that knows absolutely nothing about deer stalking or game shooting
6: exactly beat them to it and even if it is just as as simple as an entry-level safety test for shotgun and rifle shooting in the uk um i'd be more than happy to support that
5: and it should be altruistic and not commercial (laughs) yeah no that is is key But proactiveness i think oh we've got a question here sorry carry on roy
1: So the question was yeah. compulsory, compulsory. What for gun ownership? Compulsory insurance for gun ownership. That's fun. That, so, nice yeah, if you are. Okay, yes, go, go, yes.
3: know just one of my things that I obviously pick up on is what there's over three hundred thousand um, firearms and shotgun certificate holders in the UK.
2: Yeah, five hundred thousand shotguns. How? Five hundred
3: thousand now. More. Oh, I think five hundred eighty. I
4: checked. FAC. I want know yeah, I, <laughs> I want to the, to the <laughs> exact, <laughs> exact <laughs> digit.
3: <laughs> and to me, for those. So um, Basque have 110,000, 120,000, we only have 14,000, I don't know about that, 16 and a half, we're not covering them are we, they're not a member of some organisation, now I don't think it's just about insurance to me, but you should have it for the minimum for the insurance, you should, but you're also paying an organisation to represent you and to promote the work you do and hopefully safeguard it, help to safeguard it. And for me, for not being a member of any of these organisations, it's just, I don't... That's but, all, I yeah, a
2: fair, but also, if you, if you shoot for long enough, you don't have to shoot for that long until you hear of an accident that has happened. Accidents are rare, but they do happen. And when someone gets shot and no one's insured, it's a disaster. You know, You wouldn't drive a car without insurance and you're doing something which is potentially very, very dangerous Absolutely. if you get it wrong. So to, to head out into the field on a driven day with no insurance is pretty mad, I think.
5: It's not, it's, no, it's, it's not just a shooting accident. It's, it's, it's a spaniel going through a hedge and causing a car accident. Yeah, and All yeah. of a sudden you're looking at something that's reasoned of forty thousand, fifty thousand pounds £50,000. It's, yeah. it's, know, it's, it's a major it's small, life event.
3: It's a small price to pay for day shooting, really, Yeah, yeah. A, You know, to
4: save so, peace of mind. Sorry, go, Doc. I was say, uh, obviously a lot of people shoot only in a, a controlled environment. Be it at a playground where there's a kind of corporate liability involved, or on a commercial estate where they again have some, assume some umbrella cover for the people that are taking part in that activity, and they think, you know, we, we provide affordable insurance through through the magazine, and we encourage people to take it up. And you do wonder if maybe uh, when we're talking about um, a way to incentivise people to take a safety course, in the same way as if you're a young driver, you could take an extra course and get your premium reduced, that might be a good way to encourage people to take up both the, the, the course and also the insurance. I think, it, just say,
5: if you're going to think about, okay, having mandatory insurance or whatever, and I actually don't support that, but I think voluntary is better. Um, the, there's a challenge there to the shooting organisations to work better together. Definitely. And, you know, we need to really grow up, and I think behind the scenes we do actually work well together, but there's a challenge for the future there. And there's potential for, albeit keeping the individual identities of organisations, working far better in open, efficient federation. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And I think, uh, just to, to reinforce the point that Sarah made, just is uh, closing, and I, I know that uh, Alex supports this, is that we should be supporting our organisations for the work they do. The insurance is a bonus, but they do a lot of work behind the scenes. Uh, some would argue we should there should be some stuff that's more public-facing, but I think that's something they're all working towards. But the organizations are the people that safeguard what we do. And you should be joining for that reason. And hey, you get some insurance as well. Uh, but I think we're going to wrap up there. Otherwise, we could go on forever. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much to everybody who's on the panel. Thank you even more to the people who hung around the whole time to, uh, to listen and contribute. And we're going to be doing the same thing again tomorrow. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you um, want to listen to the show and pass it on to other people, you can find it on iTunes and Stitcher if you don't have an iPhone. Uh, it's also on YouTube and TuneIn Radio. So there's leaflets just behind you if you want to pick up one that's got all the information on you. They're just uh, at the stand there that has the Sacked banner. There's some, there's some of our podcast leaflets on there, so you can pick them up. Thank, thank you very much. Guys. Mm. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks,
3: guys. Thank you.
0: And that's it for another two weeks. We will be joined again with Louise Gray, like we said earlier. And if you want some heads up on
1: the interview, go and buy her book. The Ethical Carnival. Yeah, it is on Amazon. I think that's the best place you can go. I get think it. that's where we got it from. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to enter our competition to win a set of smith optics shooting glasses with interchangeable lenses and as daryl said at the start it is going to be another picture competition check out our social media feeds podcast into the wilderness on facebook pace underscore brothers on instagram and uh we didn't mention at the start but we mentioned it quite a bit you need to visit our website which is all the w's the pace brothers.com on there is everything that you could possibly want with regard to what we're up to Including um, our blog tab with new articles, articles linked to the podcast, and also the shop and our wilderness hunts as well. Yeah, which, which we are, which are booking up really fast right now. So if you if it's if that was something you were interested on, you've been kind of mulling it over. You need to get in because actually we have three hunts open and half the places are booked already. Yeah, with probably
0: enough people to fill the other half as well. Just inquiries, inquiries. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, get in there first, uh, just go to the website, everything is on there, and also in regards to our shop, we, I think, in fact, an order just came in about five minutes ago, uh, we are running out of uh, stock right now, so get it
1: now, and we're going to be reordering very soon. Yeah, we're going to be doing a bit of a revamp with products as well, yep. so there's going to be some fresh stuff coming in the next few months. Yep, I think that's it. We we need to go because we're catching a plane. <laughs> uh, don't forget that this podcast is sponsored and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Yay.